Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Welcome to episode 12 for season 7, which in base 4 is 1330. And that really doesn't matter. For today, I am still Drew Freeman, here with my literarily spiteful co-host, Janie Clayton. Hello. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 20th, 2018. Today's episode is also sponsored by Brother International and the Brother QL 1100 printer labeler. And... For today's episode, we welcome back Arthur Mays. Art was our first guest this season, and we are happy to bring him back toward the end of the season. Art is going to give us a better understanding of MVVM. Later on in the second half, Janie is going to be talking to us about this new cool core ML thing, what it really is, and what you actually can do with it. Hello. Thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. So... First of all, Art, it is wonderful to have you back. Uh, I had a lot of people tell me they they really enjoyed the uh, first show that we did, and I'm glad that we could drag you back out of all of the projects that you find yourself working with. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And Janie and I, of course, will be interrogating you because I'll be honest, I have been doing, you know, iOS apps since iOS apps dropped. And before that, I was an early adopter in Objective-C to do Mac programming. So MVC was my life. Model view controller, model view controller. That That's what I learned. That's what I did. And I remember as the whole MVVM started developing, and idiot me, of course, I assumed MVVM was model view view model, which sort of is what it is, but not how that sounds. So why don't you start us off and talk about what MVVM is? Let me start this way. Uh, MVVM is the shiny new hammer. And in programming, anytime you get a shiny new hammer, somebody's going to try to use it for everything. Same way they are with RX, same way they are with Reactive. They want to use it for everything. And that's a great idea for MVVM when you're starting out. Right, because we need to develop this idea further so that it can be used in a way that is going to be productive for us. Well, no, and, and I appreciate you know use it on all your your test projects to get a, a good feel for how it works, right. so that you learn it. But obviously, it you know, the hammer is not meant for every repair job. Exactly. So, so yeah, we've got the shiny new hammer. So only by using it do you learn how it shouldn't be used, right? Of course. So let's let's talk about what it is. Okay. Uh, to get people starting on hammering on things that should use screwdriver anyway. All right. So to my mind, MVVM is a natural extension of the same thing you'll see with core data. With core data, you have the managed object, which is generated by Xcode if you're lucky, if you do it right. And then you have extensions on the managed object, which are accessors, so that when the model, the managed object, the model in this case, changes, you don't have to worry so much about how the model is processed. Right, So you, you will be able to get the data you need, even if the model changes, because the view model will coordinate that, and it'll give you what you need. So I'm less of a general program, more of a weird masochist that deals with like low-level crap. What, what is, what is the, the problem that MVVM is trying to solve that you get from like MVC? Like why, why is everybody like you know, crapping on MVC, and why, why, why are people trying to like fix it and change it and do things differently? Like what, is the, what is the problem that this is solving? Giant view controllers. Yes. Giant monstrosities 
of a view controller because people will just stick whatever the hell they want to into a view controller and pretend like it's supposed to be there. I'm not going anywhere with that. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's always been. You've got the model, which is your business data. You've got the view, which is the input output on the world. And then the controller glues everything together. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen them be monolithic, and I and I, I, I enjoyed the, the advent of categories to say, let's try to pull some of this into, like, subsections there. So, yeah, the the, the view controller itself, or the, the controller became insane. Yes. As I said, when I first saw MVV, MVVM, and I know I was wrong, I saw it as model, view, view, model, which is not accurate. It's actually model, view, view model. So, can you give me an idea how a view model model differs from a controller. Yeah, a more accurate name might be model, view, view model, view controller, but that makes for an awfully long acronym, and that's not quite as precise, or that's, I guess, more precise than we need to be. Brass tacks, you got your model, and your data is changing all the time because you have back-end programmers who are changing that data all the time. The APIs are changing all the time. You have to adjust your model because you're trying to pull in the data into your app and use it in a way that makes sense to display in the UI. That's why the view model exists. Because what it's doing is it's taking that model that you get from the data and saying, I need to use this in a way that I can represent to the user. So the view model says, oh, you need to fill this label? Well, here's the data you need for it. Uh, oh, you need me to process this information, this information, and this information that we got from the back end because your orchestration layer is crap. This view model is going to do that for you. So then is the view model like replacing the view controller and like if it's doing that like like how how is this actually sol- resolving the issue of the massive view controllers? Well, it, to my mind <clears throat> and this might be unique, it might not. Uh, the view controller serves two purposes. One is moving things around, and two is putting data on the screen. I don't want my view controller to have to process the data it puts on the screen. I want it to have access to the data that is processed. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So basically, with with the view model, we're, we're dealing with the things that are going to change model state. Uh, sorry, we're going to change view state, but it's basically a direct path to the view states in general and then the controller separates out some of the finer juggling of the data before it gets pushed or pulled from the model yeah and as we get more and more complex with our ui specifically in ios apps uh with things moving in and out and you've got uh to like just the other day i put in one view controller that's a parent view controller that controls a collection view that passes another view controller in as part of the collection view so that you can scroll through it using two buttons. Basically a page view controller, right? Mm -hmm. But this was a custom page view controller using other view controllers. And I divided it up into three or four different VCs so that each of them were less than 200 lines. Each of them were easily digestible. And if someone walks into this and they don't have, you know, four or five months of experience with this code base, they can look at it and understand what things do because to my that's one of the most problematic things is you're getting new developers on these pr- uh, projects all the time and they walk into a code base they don't understand if you've got a thousand line long view controller what are the chances they're going to understand anything that's happening in that view controller slim to none i mean well it's always been the case that if you can abstract code down so that you look at in any file the minimal amount of information you need to make a change you don't get blitzed with unnecessary things and 
wondering, well, what touches X? And then, uh, as I often joke, you know, in, in the beginning of the movie, Buckaroo Bonsai, and they're doing brain surgery, the first thing that Jeff Goldblum's character does is he goes to grab something, and, and Buckaroo leans over and says, no, 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 don't tug on that. You don't know what it's attached to. <laughs> and I, I've always felt that if I can abstract yeah. down smaller, then I don't run that risk of saying, well, maybe I need to look at all these other things. It, it's almost inviting analysis paralysis. That's wonderfully accurate. And the beauty of the view model is that the view controller can ask the view model for something without manipulating the view model, without altering it. The view model can go to the, the data object, the model object. And there's a big push these days for the model object to be full of LETs, L-E-T, right? Which is, uh, you, you don't manipulate them without cloning the view model, I mean the, the model. So our model's a struct, it's full of non-variable variables, and the view model goes into that struct and says, and pulls the data and then processes it the way we need. All very confined, all modular. I love modularity. And then it, the view controller asks for that data when it needs it. So you you were saying that this is kind of this exists so that you when the API changes that like those are like confined to a single like class and that like like the UI doesn't have to know that the model changed. Is that yeah? That's essentially a, a, a good way of looking at it. And I think one of the a primary selling points for the idea of a view model is that when you're processing data, you don't want to search through a view controller to find out what parts of the code are moving views around and what parts of the code are processing data. Well, isn't isn't this a thing that could be taken care of if you just had people that actually thought about their code and actually tried to like like not just throw everything into the view controller? I mean, is this just is this just resolving an issue of people being inexperienced? This is just a paradigm for that we can set up that makes situations like that less common. You're always going to run into people who don't have a lot of experience who are attempting to to break into this thing and do this thing anew, and. It's great because a lot of those people will find ways of using things that maybe the designers didn't intend, right? Like everybody is trying, and this drives me crazy, everybody is trying to extend structs forever and ever, amen, and they're trying to extend protocols the same way. Everything's a protocol now, again, with the shiny new hammer thing. Protocol-based programming, which is yet another big, happy everybody's <laughs> doing. That's what Apple wants us to do. Yeah, but it can be overused. If you try to make everything a protocol, it doesn't mean anything anymore, you know? If you try to make everything a struct, the concept of a struct doesn't mean anything anymore. And then if, if you try to use KVO with a struct, you're, you're out of luck. You can't do it, but people are so resistant to classes anymore that it, it's 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 kind of ridiculous. So, now, like when I first got into the programming stuff, like I had a lot of trouble grokking MVC. I mean, like I I kind of grok it, but like like maybe not necessarily the way that I should because I don't work with that as much because I do more low level stuff. But like from from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like like the MVVM is even more complex than MVC. Like if if, if our intention is to kind of keep um you know. The, the, the beginning programmers from shoving beans up their nose is creating a more complicated paradigm, a better way of doing that. I, uh, you make a good point, and here's my counter argument. One would think you were a lawyer at one point. When you're talking about uh, easily digestible pieces of information, sometimes breaking it down is good. And granted, it might look like you have more things to deal with, but each of those individual pieces is easier to understand. So while discussing MVVM, you can say, well, now you've got a view model and now you have to worry about the view. And why aren't you talking about the view controllers anymore? Are they just gone? Do you not think about them? 
there are, there are an awful lot of things in there, but the crux of it is we want modularity because it's easier to understand than giant things that you can spend hours combing through without really gleaning what they are. Just because, like, again, like, I'm coming, this is a relative beginner, and, like, I've noticed that a lot of people who only have, like, one or two years of experience because we, we you know, value experience above all other things, people go like, oh, yeah, of course I understand MVVMC, Viper, blah, blah, blah. I'm totally going to use this because that's what everybody says is, like, awesome. Like, I remember when I first started, like, like, like everybody was demonizing singletons, and I'm like, well, if you're not going to use singletons, then how are you supposed to share data within your application and like nobody really knew they were just kind of like well you just you just don't use singletons i'm like well what are you supposed to use instead of singletons then and like i've noticed a, like like the worst code bases that i've worked on are worked on by people with one or two years of experience who are too afraid of asking questions about software architecture and they wind up like implementing these weird crazy things because they're told by the experienced programmers that this is what they're supposed to be doing well it really does bring up a wonderful point which is uh you don't want beginning coders to use singletons for everything. And the reasoning is because of potential race conditions, right? If one uh, class is changing data and the other class is, is digesting that data, well, are they getting the newest data? No, which is one of the things that Reactive has stepped in to sort of handle and one of the things Moya and Promises have stepped in to handle. Uh, and you can have a hundred singletons in a project, but is it a good idea? No. So you tell the the, uh, the new guys coming on, hey, here's this fancy new hammer. Don't use it. Don't ever use it. It's the worst thing ever. And then eventually they'll learn, well, what if I need to? And then they'll know a little bit more and use it correctly. <laughs> well, I just feel like every six months we have like a new like shiny thing that's like like schoolhouse rock where it's like use this but not that and like we don't we don't spend enough time really like like delving into why one thing is better than something else. Yeah, it's the same with agile methodology. It's the same with MVVM. Whenever you throw this stuff at people, they're going to customize it, and everybody's going to be arguing from their own perspective about why their approach is the best. So we know that MVVM is this great new hammer, and we know that you know kids are going to go, ooh, new tool, and hammer their thumbs repeatedly. But obviously there are situations where MVVM really is the right solution. And definitely it's a situation where, yes, I know MVC looks right here, or even maybe, you know, and we talked about this thing, you know, singletons and, and you'd said, you know, everybody, you know, I don't want an inexperienced engineer using singletons for everything. Right. I don't want an experienced engineer using singletons for everything. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is what is the right time to pick up this hammer? What what is it about MVVM where I am confronted? What kind? Give me a, a problem where you say, okay, obviously now this is where MVVM really does apply. I think it shines with a complex data model, especially at and you'll have to forgive me because I've been in the corporate environment for so long that I've been working with uh, huge teams and we got back end people who never, ever, ever speak to front end people. Uh -huh. And we all live sort of in our glass enclosures and look at what everybody else is doing if we care to look. Mm -hmm. But so you've got a whole bunch of back end people doing a whole bunch of back end things and giving you data willy nilly in a way that makes sense to them. Then you've got visual designers who give you a way that data, data needs to be laid out and displayed. And the two never the twain shall meet, right? You never get the back end guys talking to the visual designers because they don't care about each other. And we sort of sit in the middle trying to realize this interpretation of how the data should appear on screen and then uh, a mess of data that is totally not equipped 
to be displayed the way we need to display it. The view model handles that. For some reason, Grasshopper, you think this is only something that large corporations do. <laughs> well, I don't imagine that you got the pick of the litter anytime you walk into a new project with your back-end developers. But yeah. Well, he's a people person, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you say complex model. Yeah. And yeah, I, I understand it's like the back-end folks are doing something on their own. By complex model... Are we talking models that interact with other models? Are we talking networking? Give me an idea of a complex. I, I, I like trying to, to get a tangible touchable rather than the abstract name. So we've got, um, for instance, uh, we're making call after call after call to the back end, and that back end is constantly updating the model. Right. And it won't all happen at the one time at the same time. Sometimes you have to make 25 calls before you have a, a model that you can actually use. Now, in the process, you don't want your user sitting and waiting for that damn activity indicator to stop indicating so that you can actually use the app. So you give them some form of usability, however limited that might be. Well, the view model. Right. And this is as distinguishable from uh, reactive code and, and KVO. The view model can access the data when it's necessary. It can structure the data in a way that the view controller can digest and display. And it can do that on an ongoing basis. Whenever the view controller says, view model, give me this data, the, the view model can access the model in its current state, process that data, which is new data. You don't want to store those variables locally, right? Because the, if the data is always changing and you've got a stored uncalculated variable, then you're asking for trouble. Pseudo, show me data. All right, let's talk ownership. In a view model controller, the controller basically instantiates the model, loads in the data, and then it talks and converts and talks to the view. Well, now we have model view, view controller, view model. Who owns what? Who is responsible for finding what? The view controller owns all the views, naturally, uh, depending on how you embed them as well. I mean, let's forget about that for a moment, just simplify it. The view model owns all the views, naturally. And to some degree, it owns the view model as well okay. because it's instantiating the view model as a processor. And it's saying, view model, go grab the data from the model and give it to me in a way that I can understand. Honestly, there are so many ways to approach it. And I've seen so many different instantiations of view models that just try to do too much and irritated the hell out of me at the beginning. And still, I've got colleagues who refuse to use MVVM because of exactly that reason, because apparently... Nobody knows what a view model is supposed to do. <laughs> and everybody, like I said, has their own opinions about it. And so they, they create something that is not easy to understand and try to put too much into it. We know that Xcode's UI kit, app kit, is pretty well wired with a whole lot of templates that have made it very easy to go into the MVC world. I mean, literally you have NS view controller and UI view controller. Do you, is there... Uh, in a GitHub project or somewhere, any AppKit UI kit base classes that help people understand and learn this? Is this something that would be really nice to see added into Xcode's AppKit and UI kit? Understanding, of course, that as soon as you put the hammer in the big toolbox, it just makes people want to go play with it. But in the best route, what's the best way to, uh, to, to templatize one of these things? You start with MVC, and then you find out, well, my data is more complex than I anticipated. I can either shove all this into the view controller, or I can start to separate it out into its own entity in order to make it more digestible. So 
if you're talking about uh, walking in with the perspective, I'm going to use MVVM on everything. It's going to be the best thing ever, and I'm going to do it for all of this stuff. It's tremendous. But, you know, the, the idea is kind of behind what I've been saying is if you, right, if you start out with a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. So don't assume your project's a nail. Start off understanding what your project is and what sort of tools you'll need to to hammer in or screw it in or, you know, whatever. So, Art, thank you for coming back to the show. It was great talking to you early in the season. It's great talking to you late in the season because I really appreciate the view that you bring on not just technology, but understanding, having some sense of control with those technologies because it's just so easy to let that get away. Art, I really, really appreciate you, you taking the time out for us. You're doing a fantastic job, guys. I enjoy the podcast. Of course, we'll have you stick around because coming up in the second half of the show, Janie is going to be giving us a look into CoreML because it's this, again, a new cool thing, but it's understanding what actually it can and can't do for you. And, I, and there's a lot of stuff under there, and I'm looking forward to that. The RayWonderlick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. Sponsoring today's podcast is Brother International. The Brother QL 1100 label printers offer seamless integration of label printing functionality into your app development requiring nominal coding. The SDK is well documented, easy to use, and works with most operating systems, including Windows, iOS, and Android. Get the SDK and check out the Brother Mobile App Hackathon being held on March 23rd and 24th in Irvine, California. Brother is looking for teams of designers and developers to submit software for apps or prototypes that integrate with a Brother QL or Rugged Jet printer labeler. Sign up now through March 23rd. Get all the details at httpptouch.com slash QL1100. And a special thank you to Brother International for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. CoreML was pretty much introduced at WWDC this past year. It does a lot of really stunning things and there's always a little bit of confusion about what ends of the spectrum of this stuff Cormel does do and doesn't do so Janie how do you get us started in, in seeing this more clearly so first I want to give a little bit of context about like Apple's introduction of various frameworks so Apple over the last several years will come in and it will ju- introduce something that seems like it's like revolutionary and groundbreaking and mind-blowing so like I remember back when iOS 7 first came out and Sprite Kit was announced. It was like, holy crap! There's this whole like game engine type thing that Apple has introduced. Like, is going to make it so easy to go in and create games. So then you go in and you start working with Sprite Kit. And you're like, wait a minute, what the heck is all of this stuff? Like, I I don't know how I'm supposed to work with any of this stuff. And so like, it, it's really exciting for a while until people figure out that they can't work with it, and then it just kind of like the interest in it kind of wanes. And like, you know, over the years they'll they'll add new stuff to it. But like, a lot of the the tools that Apple introduces that are truly like groundbreaking like um this year we had two of them we had ar kit and core ml like people go into it thinking having unrealistic expectations about what it is that they're actually going to do you think if you have ar kit that you can just type like two lines of code and you can have like a fully functioning like pokemon go clone but that's not really how it works like 
AR kit takes care of some stuff for you, but you also need to have some kind of proprietary knowledge about how to create 3D scenes in a rendering engine like Unity or SceneKit. And so a lot of people get very disillusioned by these frameworks because they think that they're like magic and they're going to go in and create anything that they can think of with like two lines of code. But you still need to have some basis of knowledge about what it is that they're doing in order for them to actually be useful. And it, and it doesn't help that once they... For example, ARKit came out, there were all these demos posted of ridiculously amazing things. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the, the, the AHA video takeoff, for example. And people were like, well, this is so amazing, so oh, I'm yeah. going to go do this thing. And you realize, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm out so, of there. It, generally speaking, just what, what CoreML does is that CoreML makes it easier for you to integrate a data model into your application. And what that means is it's kind of like that scene from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where all of the philosophers built the giant computer Deep Thought and asked Deep Thought, what is the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything? So they came back a thousand years later and asked what the answer was, and Deep Thought said 42. And they're like... Now what's the question? Yeah, now what's the question? So like, like <laughs> Coromel gives you 42, but it doesn't give you the question. <laughs> so the the the, be, the, the real um, like power that comes with neural networks and machine learning and other stuff is having a trained data model. So what 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 that means is basically like so we're trying to find a way of emulating how human beings actually process information. So like I like to give kind of examples of like if you're a person, some decision that you might make that you don't necessarily think of in a granular like details. So like let, let's say you're you're looking for a new job and you have two job offers and one job is ten minutes away but another one's an hour away, but the one that's an hour away pays you $10,000 a year more than the one that's 10 minutes away. So, like, which one do you pick? So, like, it... Like, it all depends. Like, some people really care about the extra $10,000, and they will travel an extra two hours a day to go off to that company to get an extra $10,000 a year. But for other people, like, they value their free time more, and they would rather be able to just kind of roll out of bed and throw on a hoodie and drive 10 minutes to get to their job 10 minutes away. So with CoreML, do you pre-assign weight to different... No, CoreML doesn't do any of that. That is done in the data model that needs to be trained that integrates with CoreML. So, like, what the, the the big thing that really makes CoreML powerful is having a trained data model. But tra right now, CoreML doesn't actually train the data model for you. So you have to like. So my uh, mentor. Uh, Brad Larson. Um, in the last couple of months, he started a new company called Perceptual Labs, and one of the things, that, and one of the things that they do is that they train data models. So he has a custom-built computer. I love the idea of training a data model because I think of it as a thing that just sort of sits there. Well, let, let, let right? me. It, we populate it, and then it just sits there. Well, what what he does is he has a custom-built computer that he built that has several um, NVIDIA GTX 1080 chips in it, and he has like a liquid cooling system in there, and it takes they're like you know, with this so they basically are, are running these as fast as to the maximum capability that they have and it takes them 24 to 48 hours to train a data model and one of the things that makes training a data model difficult is that you need to have a very large data set of like 5,000 images to do something like like image recognition so like if you looked at like you know the, the, the stupid Silicon Valley like hot dog not hot dog example like in order to train a data model to tell if something was a hot dog or not a hot dog you needed to have like 5,000 
and images of hot dogs. You needed to have them in different states. You needed to have them in buns. You needed to have them from different angles. You needed to have them in packaging and out of packaging in order to be able to train a data model to make decisions about whether or not the image that it was looking at was a hot dog or not. So the data model is sort of the box of samples that you had and the box of samples. No, if, 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 if we get back to my original thought that I had that was interrupted by art. Thanks. <laughs> so, so it, with, with, in my very simple example, you have two different like you know decisions that need to be made. Like, like what's more important to you, your your salary or the amount of time that you have to travel? These are tensors. So, like the way that we think about it is like we assign different weights to those because, based on what what's important to us. And so, um, within the data model, you have a bunch of different nodes that are making a judgment call on one. One thing or another, like one common thing is um, image capture and being able to do object detection. So you'll have a, a tensor that looks at something and tries to determine whether or not it has an edge. And if it has an edge, then that tensor will activate and it'll give a positive. But are those weights determined based on uh, applicability to the current question? Those weights are determined by feeding a large data set of information to the model as it's being trained. So you're, you're showing it 5,000 images of hot dogs and you're telling it this is what a hot dog looks like. And and you're also feeding it a bunch of images saying this is not a hot dog. And then you're going in and it's guessing about whether something's a hot dog or not. So it's kind of like, you know, like baby Groot from like Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Like, I am Groot. Yes, I am Groot. I am Groot. No, 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 no. That's totally wrong. So like, like by going in and showing it a bunch of examples of something that it's supposed to learn, it's eventually like coming in and trying to figure out what makes something a hot dog. So like, like one of the the, the good examples that we have of of you know kind of the the bubble of technology is that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are trying to do autonomous driving. So they're basing a lot of their data samples on like roads and everything that are around Silicon Valley. So then you take these cars that have been trained on like images of roads from Silicon Valley and you're putting them in like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the middle of winter. So there is snow, there are ice lines, there, there are salt lines on the road and it doesn't have any idea what it's supposed to do because it's been trained to not know that this is something that exists. So like like the whole like point of the data model is that you're trying to give the computer enough information that it can go in and analyze it in a very like minute detailed way to figure out what makes something a hot dog or what makes something a road, or what makes something whatever it is that you want it to know what it is. So would an example, let's say, be you you give it 10,000 games of poker that were played, and you tell it all the cards that were dealt, and all the bets that were made, and all the outcomes that were done, and now you've got this trained model, and you can basically say, okay, now I have these five cards, yes. and I want to make this bet, and it's going to say, well, in these situations, yes, in these situations, not. so the model is sort of a black box of what I've taught it is the correct correct way to think. Correct. That is that is what that is. And that is where all of the value comes from in deep learning and neural networks and all of this these these cool buzzwordy type things. And that is the thing that is difficult because it's incredibly hard to go out and find a large enough data set to train a data model on. And then on top of that, Core ML does not do that. Core ML does not make that black 
box. Correct. What Core MML does is it takes that black box and makes it easy for you to plug it into your application so that you can feed it stuff and then get output from it. Okay, so so Core ML would take the the trained poker games and then I could basically make a poker simulator saying, "Okay, let's start playing poker." Yes. And it will start advising me how it thinks would be best for me to learn to play. Yes, that bingo. That is that is absolutely correct. Or bingo. Or yeah, <laughs> a lot of the 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 issues of of stuff is not only having large enough data set, but making sure you have fidelity in the data set. That is not, you know, being impacted by your prejudices. We have now established what CoreML does not do. So let's talk about having that black box what does CoreML give us? Like I said, the, the, the main, so like there are a couple of different common types of neural networks that are, well, not neural networks, like, like data set, data models that are, that have, have common, fi- common formats. So like TensorFlow is a common format for trained data models and Keras is one. And like what it does is it makes it easy for you to bring in these data models and the, the types of problems that these solve are they do like nat- natural language processing, image recognition, handwriting recognition, anything that can, um, like, you know, that deals with being able to analyze images and be able to break them down into features. So it's good at, like, machine vision. What CoreML does is it gives you an easy way of bringing this stuff in and being able to plug it into your application without having to drop down to metal, because you can do this in metal and you can get more performance from metal, but you don't necessarily need to know metal in order to bring in a trained data model. So let's say I'm doing image recognition. I have a picture of a daffodil, and let's say my data model is 200,000 plants that have been trained. I'm assuming that with CoreML, I can feed the image of the daffodil to the data model and I take it it's gonna if the data model can tell me name of type of flower, it'll belch out a string that says daffodil? If it's been trained to recognize daffodils, if it hasn't been trained to recognize daffodils, it'll pick whatever is the closest thing that it has within its repository, which is another kind of pitfall that comes with um, trying to train these data sets is because there, again, there's one that has been trained to recognize a thousand different objects. And what it does is it won't say, this isn't a thing that I have in my data set. It'll just look at it and go, what is the closest thing that I can think of that's within my data set that matches the thing that I'm looking at right now? So you can't just dump a bunch of information in and expect it to learn? No. You, you have to you have to label everything. You have to tell it, you know, this is a picture of a pug. This is a picture of a salt shaker. This is a picture of a deer. But like, like kind of kind of, kind of one of the, the, the points that I wanted to make about CoreML is that CoreML will not go in and train your data model for you. And as of right now, you can't really train a data Data model on on an iPhone. Like I said, my my um, my mentor has has a, a computer that he built custom that has GTX 1080 Nvidia chips and a liquid cooling system, and it takes 48 hours for him to train a data model on that. Like yeah, that, that that's a cryptocurrency mining box. That's, that's yes, not, yes, it yeah. is because I mean GPU processing. Yeah, so like like my my tiny weak GPU on my iPhone 6s is not going to go in and train a data model, and I also like I don't think like you know when you have all of your you have all the people who are stuck with the 16 gigabyte iPhones like you're not going to be able to download like like massive data sets onto an iPhone to go and do like you know training of data models so it sounds like CoreML itself is in fact at this point still a very simple uh, API in that you really are just plugging in a very large, big component that is external and not created by CoreML. You've got a couple of simple calls to basically say, I want to ask the big black box some things and get some information. One of the, the Ray Wenderlich team members, Matthias Holmans, is one of the, the, the 
kind of leading edge iOS people who's working in the machine learning space. And his analogy was that Coromel is similar to SceneKit, that SceneKit makes it a lot easier for you to go in and create a 3D game. However, you still need to understand game design and you need to understand animation. You need to understand what it is that you actually want to do. So like it facilitates you doing the thing that you want to do, but it won't do the work for you. All right. So it's time for me to ask the standard question because you, you've gotten to play in Coromel for a while. If we have Apple listeners, if we have Apple engineers listening in, or project managers, or people who make decisions, what do you think Core ML needs for enhancement? What 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 would you like to see come in? Well, the only thing that I would say is like I would like to make it easier for me to be able to train a data model on the computer. And like one of the things that got me excited about WWDC was they mentioned that they had this like external GPU uh, like developer kit for people doing things in Metal Two, and like they they were saying that it was for uh, virtual reality. However, I I was looking at that going, huh, I could go out and buy a bunch of really cool NVIDIA chips and I could attach them to my iMac or my laptop and I could use that to train neural networks. So like like the big thing was like a lot of the, the 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 Apple hasn't really wanted you to customize their computers very much. They like to control like all of the hardware end to end. So it's been incredibly difficult to be able to build a computer that was an Apple computer that was powerful enough to train a neural network. Like you've had to build a Linux or a, a Windows machine because they actually let you like open it up and change out the parts. And Apple hasn't done that. So their solution of having this external developer toolkit of being able to plug an external GPU into your computer to be able to deal with virtual reality and neural network training, I think is a really good step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, I really hadn't thought about the fact that the external GPU is really the first time that you've been able to modify the hardware on a Mac in, in years. After Wozniak left. Well, no, I mean, I remember the... Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Like, Steve Jobs movie. I, I just, I remember the G4 boxes where you could just take the side off and, and pull things and and put them in. And I do miss that. And there's always the complaints from the non-Apple users that, well, you can't modify it. And that is a step in the right direction. And I agree that with uh, with an added GPU or being able to enhance the GPU, yeah, you can do the AR, you can do the metal, but yeah, that's uh, you can do high computation, which is what is in, in the model training. Like for me, like specifically, like I'm not a huge like person who, who has my dream computer planned out where I pick out the motherboard and the CPU and the GPU. I don't give a crap about any of that. That is not the low-level area of things that, that interests me. I love being able to just go to the Apple Store saying, give me those powerful like iMac that you have, and then being able to take it home and turn it on and have it just... just work. Like, I, I care about focusing my attention on other things, and I really did not like the idea of having to figure out how to build a whole freaking computer and put Windows on it and deal with all of that crap, because I've never owned a Windows computer before. Every computer that I've owned since 1985 has been an Apple computer. I like them because they just work, and I don't have to worry about anything. I can tell them I want more power, I want more RAM, or I want whatever, and it just it just comes that way and I don't have to worry about it and it makes me happy and so like being able to continue with that and just be but just being able to add you know the most powerful external GPU that I can that makes me very happy I don't I don't want to build a Windows computer yeah and and it's nice because if it's an external GPU and a new chip comes out you can make it faster and that is going to be good for that high data crunching if you can ever find them at Best Buy because everybody's bought them for Ethereum mining (laughs) 
I'm really excited to see if Apple will bring in the software tools to help build up these data models. With the new iMac Pro, which is so powerful, it looks like you have enough on board and now extensibly to, to do that kind of work. There there was the, the amazingly pre-released information that there is going to be a Mac Pro coming, probably this year or next year, which is just unbelievably exciting. And I'd like... Now we need a Mac Mini. Oh God, we need a Mac Mini. But I really think think that this is some good stuff. And I'm really kind of amused because we've hit two technologies today, which are both incredibly amazing looking hammers. And both of you have said, look at these amazing hammers. You probably don't need to use them. And that's, that's great. I, I, I love the fact that we've brought out all this new information, but most importantly, we've said, you know, you really don't have to go running for these new pieces of, of hardware. Well, for me, the reason that I wanted to talk about this was because about a third of my book on metal programming is about, um, like, image recognition and neural networks and machine learning stuff because that was a thing that I heard people talking about for several years and I had no context for what any of it was. And I would talk to people that knew what it was and they would give me like, you know, really intricate edge casey type things talking about how to deal with specific tensors about how to do this and like whatever i'm like i have i have no context for anything that you're telling me like i just i don't even have any understanding about what any of the stuff is so like for me one of the things that i was really excited about with writing the metal book was being able to kind of jump in and go okay what does all of this crap actually mean how does it work what is give me some some basis of understanding of foundation so that i can go in and go okay this is a tool it does this thing this is how it works this is how I get started with it, and this is what I can do with it. And that just isn't readily available for some of these lower-level technologies because they're assuming that anybody that's interested in them has 20 years of experience or is getting a PhD or works for Google. And I think that information should be free, and I think everybody should have access to it, and I don't like the idea that it's obfuscated from people and being told, no, this isn't for you because you don't work for Google or you don't work at a university or you didn't you flunked high school algebra, so you are locked out of the club here. So, no, that that is not how I feel about things. So I wanted to democratize this information so that people could at least have some understanding about what it is. You can't stop the signal, man. Janie, I really, really, I, I want to thank you because I've, I've also been one of those people who's looked at Coramel and gone, cool, maybe I could play. But, you know, it, it, it is realization of the strength of the technology on what's going on in the back end and having a clear idea on why you're using it. And the same thing for MBVM. It's really important to hear this. Art, I really want to thank you for coming in, and it was great having you back on the show. Janie, always, I, I can't do this show without you, and that's what makes this so much fun. It looks like that's going to wrap things up. Again, thanks for coming in. Anytime. Well, you're stuck. <laughs> Every time for you. Thanks for coming in, Art. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really do appreciate it. It's been fun. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. As always, you can find information we talked about in the show notes on the pages for the podcast at raywenderlich.com. We're going to be back in about two more weeks. We're going to have Louis De La Rosa back, and that's actually going to close out this season. But we'll be coming back just a few weeks after that with all new season, all new guests. And thank you for tuning in. Until then, it's back to the Emerald Castle. Back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.